We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. You can contribute at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some citizens claim a nuclear power plant has damaged the ocean near their homes. They want nearly a billion dollars in damages. This case does represent sort of taking it to a whole nother level in terms of using the Clean Water Act against a nuclear power plant. So you can think about a large potential damage award, but nothing in the billion dollar range. And they're a long way from their day in court. Also, the battle to stop power plant construction on Storm King. It was a mountain that had been painted by the Hudson River School of Painters. It was where George Washington had fought major battles to win the Revolutionary War. It was a mountain that had incredible significance. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A group of citizens has filed an intent to sue the Entergy Corporation, alleging that the Pilgrim Atomic Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts, has violated the Clean Water Act. They say the plant has polluted Cape Cod Bay, massively killed local fish populations, and the operators kept inadequate environmental records. Entergy could be liable for over $800 million in penalties. Citizens have the right to sue when the government fails to enforce the Clean Water Act. So if the EPA does not step in within 60 days, this plaintiff group can proceed. Their lead attorney is Meg Sheehan of Ecolaw. Well, at this point, we're alleging that they have violated the Federal Clean Water Act on over 33,000 separate occasions by discharging pollutants at levels that exceed those permitted in their Clean Water Act permit, and also that they're failing to adequately monitor and report some of the discharges that they're dumping out into the bay. Since about 2000, when Entergy took over Pilgrim from Boston Edison, Entergy has failed to obtain EPA's approval for their marine monitoring plan. To us, that's a really egregious violation because when Pilgrim was built in the 70s, there was great concern in the scientific community among the fishermen and the fisheries experts that there would be this terrible impact. And these very strict provisions were put in for regulatory oversight. But when Entergy came in, they pretty much told the regulators that they weren't willing to participate with this oversight advisory committee. So that's the crux of our allegations. How is it that Entergy is killing thousands of fish, you say? First of all, They take in 510 million gallons a day of cooling water from Cape Cod Bay. Any kind of marine life, whether it's a fish or plankton, anything that can't avoid the velocity of the pumps gets sucked into the plant. And some of the bigger fish get slammed against these screens and trash racks that they have. The fish are killed either by being impinged and killed on the screens or they're sucked in and basically fried. Back in the 1990s, um, the state marine fisheries department stated that Pilgrim's operations had killed off up to 40 percent of the winter flounder population. Why did you decide to use the citizen lawsuit provision in the Clean Water Act to launch this case? Well, really, we had no other option. We've been talking with federal regulators and state regulators 
since early this year, urging them to look closely at this, to look at these monitoring reports and look at the violations and to review Entergy's permit, which expired 16 years ago, to make sure that they were doing the proper monitoring and no action was taken. This plant's going to be operating for another 20 years from what we understand. So we just felt this was our only option. What's your ultimate goal here? Do you want them to clean up their act or you just want to shut this nuclear power plant down? I think it's unrealistic to think that we'd be able to shut it down. We've accepted the reality that it has been relicensed by the NRC. And our view is that if it is going to continue to operate, this kind of environmental destruction is unacceptable. These kind of violations are unacceptable. And EPA really does have to take a very solid look at this and update the permit. Meg Sheehan is an attorney with EcoLaw. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Living on Earth contacted the Energy Corporation seeking comment on the potential lawsuit. Pilgrim Station spokesperson Carol Whiteman sent this statement. Energy takes its environmental responsibilities and any allegation of noncompliance seriously. We will respond to the notice of intent after we have had a chance to thoroughly review the specific allegations. We note that EcoLaw unsuccessfully raised a number of these allegations in the NRC license renewal proceedings for Pilgrim Station. Well, to assess the wider implications of this case, we turn now to Patrick Parento, professor of law at Vermont Law School. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Now, how have citizens used the Clean Water Act to sue nuclear power companies in the past? It's very rare. Nuclear power plants, of course, are regulated primarily by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Federal law actually preempts state law and and even preempts the Clean Water Act when it comes to radiological health and safety issues. So you don't see very many citizen suits against nuclear power plants under the Clean Water Act. So this case does represent sort of taking it to a whole nother level in terms of using the Clean Water Act against a nuclear power plant. This group is looking for almost a billion dollars in damages. How realistic is that? Well, I don't think that's realistic. Uh, I understand why the citizens have alleged that, because the statutory maximum penalty is uh, over $32,000 per day per violation, and they're alleging tens of thousands of violations going back many years. It's unheard of that a court would actually award such a massive amount of penalties. It is possible in these cases to have penalties over a million dollars. In fact, a group called Earth Island sued the San Onofre nuclear power plant in California back in the 90s and achieved a $17 million settlement in that case. So you can think about a large potential damage award, but nothing in the billion-dollar range. Who would get the money? Well, it either goes to the United States Treasury if the court assesses the penalty, or if there's a settlement agreement, the plaintiffs, the citizen group, and the plant owner, Entergy, could create what are called environmental credit projects. In fact, there was one done for Boston Harbor many years ago, and these are projects that improve water quality. Sometimes they restore wetlands. Sometimes they create public education programs. There's a variety of things that could be agreed to in a settlement agreement. In lieu of a penalty going to the Treasury, the money would go to an environmentally beneficial project. Now, I understand that the plaintiffs are basing some of their allegations on the company's own reports and filings themselves. 
That's correct. They're called discharge monitoring reports. They're required by law. They're required to be made public. The courts have said these documents are in the nature of an admission of liability. So that gives the plaintiffs in these cases the upper hand. Now, the real question is going to come down to, do the discharge monitoring reports actually reveal the violations that the plaintiffs have alleged? And that will turn on how you interpret the terms of the permit. These discharge permits are huge documents with many provisions and conditions and terms. So I anticipate there'll be a lot of argument about what the permit actually requires and whether the discharge monitoring reports are actually showing a violation or not. Now, I know you don't have a crystal ball there at the Vermont Law School, but what kind of chance do you think they have for this case? I think they have a chance of either getting a judgment in their favor on some of these allegations or maybe even more realistically a settlement. The California case again comes to mind. In that case, a special Actually, a senior judge was appointed as a, quote, mediation judge. And these mediation judges have tremendous power to kind of force the parties into a settlement agreement, basically saying neither one of you can be sure who's going to win, and you both have a lot to lose, so I'm going to meet with you and require that you make a serious effort to try to settle your differences. I could see something like that coming out of this case. What do you think might be the financial impact Uh, of this case on energy at the end of the day? Yeah, that's really hard to judge. It's not going to be anywhere near the maximum that the citizens are seeking, but I think it could be significant enough that energy may reevaluate the economics of the continued operation of a plant like this. These plants, these older plants, you know, are reaching the end of their useful life and their economic life, so a major judgment against them for water quality violations could tip the scales in favor of shutting it down earlier rather than later. To what extent do you anticipate this tactic being replicated with other nuclear power plants now? Well, there's a lot of these nuclear plants, the Indian Point plant in New York, the Oyster Creek plant in New Jersey, and many others that are in the relicensing process. They're older plants, mostly over 40 years old, They probably were not certainly state-of-the-art when they were built. They've demonstrated that they've had significant impacts on water quality and and other environmental conditions. So I guess I would expect more citizen groups located in the vicinity of these plants to be looking for every possibility of either shutting them down, which is happening in some places, or requiring them to install much better technology to protect the environment. So I think this case may signal... I don't know if you'd call it a wave, but I think this isn't the last of these kinds of cases we're going to see. Pat Parento is the professor of law at the Vermont Law School. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Steve. Well, the problems associated with many forms of energy are giving a boost to novel developments, including enhanced geothermal power. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management has just given permission to tap a volcano in the Cascade Mountain Range in Oregon. The company, Alta Rock Energy, will drill into the Newberry volcano that's been dormant for about 1,600 years. David Blackwell is an earth sciences professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and a technical advisor on the project. There's a lot of very hot rock associated with the volcano. So what will happen is the wells will have to be drilled And then a crack will be created between two wells that allows 
water to be pumped down one well and extracted from the other well after it's heated up by running through the rock. And then the hot water will be separated into steam and run through a turbine to the surface. Then the water that is produced from that well will be reinjected back into the first well, and the cycle just continues. How hot is it down there? It's about 600 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's quite warm. Now, how safe is this? I mean, drilling cracks in, into rock in an area that's inherently unstable seems like risky business. It kind of sounds like uh, hydraulic fracturing to get natural gas. The process is very similar to the fracturing they use to get the gas shales. But in particular with uh, geothermal, there's been a number of high-level studies to determine how to do this process in the best, safest way and how to monitor it to make sure that uh, the process doesn't cause some kind of a of a problem. Now, I understand that the uh, Newbury Volcano is on Bureau of Land Management land. That's federal land. And uh, the Bureau has now given the green light to start drilling these wells. So what might be the danger to wildlife in the area? The actual site of the well is within a clear-cut section. Um, so this is not an area that's extensively used by the wildlife. Now, how much infrastructure is involved? Very little, except uh, on the drill pad, which occupies about, uh, I think, maybe five acres and all the equipment will be on that pad. There's a road, but the roads are already built, essentially, because of the timbering. There's extensive timbering on the side of the volcano. So what's the potential here? How much energy do you expect to get from the wells at the Newberry volcano when it's up and running? We estimate that there's uh, potentially about 2,000 megawatts of power that could be developed, and that's enough to uh, basically run a city of a million people. What's the overall potential for hot rock energy for the United States? The potential is immense because once we can develop the technology, then we can make accessible areas which were not previously utilizable from geothermal power. And so this could really increase by orders of magnitude the amount of geothermal power that the United States could develop. Right now there's on the order of 3,000 megawatts, but it could easily go to 10 to 20 times that number. So, Professor, how benign is this form of energy compared to the other choices we have out there? I think of burning coal, I think of nuclear power, uh, I think of solar and wind. Well, compared to solar and wind, geothermal is considered baseload. So geothermal can operate 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, whereas both solar and wind are very intermittent. And so they require other types of power to supplement them when the sun isn't shining or or the wind isn't blowing. Compared to uh, coal, geothermal is extremely clean, so there are no emissions. The technology would be somewhat similar to the shale gas, but of course, uh, again, burning gas generates uh, CO2, but not nearly as much. It's not nearly as polluting as coal. And compared to nuclear? In nuclear, one has to look at the whole sequence of power source from the mining, which generates pollution because you're, you're opening up ground which has radioactive materials in it, potentially subjecting that to groundwater, you're refining it, but then when you've, you've spent the fuel, we still don't know what we're doing with all of this uh, waste fuel. And so nuclear has a whole series of very complicated uh, problems that have to be dealt with. This enhanced geothermal system sounds too good to be true. No pollution, all the steam that you need, you could power millions of homes with it. Uh, what's the catch? The catch are, are two. One, we haven't done it, and two, it's going to be a, probably a little bit more expensive than most of the other sources with the potential exception of perhaps nuclear. But that's why it's really important for the 
there to be some support for the research of this type because we need to find out if this is a source which we can develop because it could have a very, very significant impact on a lot of factors dealing with energy in the United States. David Blackwell is an earth sciences professor at Southern Methodist University. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Just ahead, Greenpeace says California's dreaming of carrying on polluting and protecting the rainforests. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Red, the U.N. plan to reduce emissions from deforestation and degradation, is an attractive idea. Have rich countries pay tropical forest nations to keep trees standing and soaking up carbon. With the International Kyoto Climate Treaty stalled, Norway has done some red deals on its own in Brazil and Indonesia, and now California is getting ready to follow suit. Critics of these efforts include Greenpeace. We'll have more about California's red plans just ahead, but first, back to 2009. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom traveled to the Amazon to see tougher enforcement of forest protection in action. Along with their translator, Marco Lima, Bruce and Bobby met with John Carter, who's trying to ranch responsibly. Here's a portion of their report. Marching bands commemorate the 30th anniversary of the city of Aguaboa. The boom town lies in the geographic heart of Brazil, at the center of cow country. The place is perfect for agriculture, flat as Kansas, but four times as large. What was once a forested frontier is now the cutting edge of Brazil's future, and fertile territory for John Carter and his Alancia de Terra, the Land Alliance. Look over here, off to the east over there around 11 o'clock, all that's our forest reserve. Carter drives us around his ranch. In this part of the Amazon, you're supposed to keep half your land forested, but few follow the law. When Carter bought the place, he decided to let 2,200 acres regrow. He says that choice cost him more than a million dollars and lost productivity. And I'll let it come back into, to come into compliance with the forest code. Do you regret doing that? No, I don't regret it, no, but I mean, personally I don't, but I mean, it, it was not a very wise decision. And I, and I don't get paid anything, and I should be getting paid carbon credits for that. Two to three tons a year per hectare that's sequestering, that's, that's a pretty good revenue stream for the ranch. The experience made John Carter one of the biggest cheerleaders for a red mechanism in Brazil. He founded the Land Alliance, and after convincing ranchers he wasn't a CIA agent, signed up 160 Amazon farmers, proving they could do better financially by doing good environmentally. We want to create uh, mechanisms that puts a carrot out in front of the producer instead of the gun barrel behind his head. Since cattle are driving deforestation in the Amazon, the Land Alliance hopes to put consumers in the driver's seat. Carter's Land Alliance is creating a premium brand of beef, guaranteed not to come from deforested land, for which consumers would pay a premium price. In effect, a red mechanism for red meat. His organization has devised a vigorous certification system for member farmers. He's coming into our system. He's taking off his clothes, basically. He's showing us his body and all the defects, and he's allowing us to tell him you know, what he needs to do to come back into compliance. So the idea is to make the value of a standing forest more valuable than if you were going to cut it down and use it for cattle, soybeans, and so on. Absolutely. Our goal, hands down, is to buy time. More importantly, is that long-term goal, like you said, to make the standing forest 
at least almost comparable value to the cleared forest. If it's 30% as valuable as the cleared forest, we're going to have a tremendous impact. It didn't have to be one-to-one. People sense that. There's a lot of goodwill and a lot of people that are willing to uh, try to create uh, a new model. Jamar Brunier is one of those people. Recently, Brunier joined Carter's Land Alliance. 20 years ago, he and his wife migrated from the south of Brazil to Mato Grosso. They came with one suitcase each and a shared dream. Today, they own a granary and 6,500 acres of land. When I bought this land, I didn't have any information from anyone. I simply came with a caterpillar and we cleared everything here. Come and look at down here. We simply cut, chop down everything all the way to the riverbanks. Land Alliance evaluators scrutinized satellite photos and visited Brunier's farm. They found he had destroyed a thousand acres too much. They gave Brunier a report detailing what needed to be done and the technical expertise to come into compliance. More carrot, less stick. And now, with the help of the Alliance, they came here and told us what to do. And before the government comes here and find me, I'm going to start to replant with the original woods from here. I will do the reforestry. Would you have known that without the uh, Land Alliance? No, I was going to be fined by the government, such a fine that I would never have money to pay. I was going to go bankrupt. But these days, it's not the government that worries farmer Jamar Bernier the most. It's a non-governmental organization, Greenpeace. The NGO's scathing report, Slaughtering the Amazon, blames farmers like Bernier for destroying the forest. If NGOs come here to accuse us, what are they going to do? We're doing things right. I will tell Greenpeace my water is clean. What would you like to tell Greenpeace? I really want to tell the guys from Greenpeace that they need to know from where the food comes from, from where the butter comes from, from where the food their kids eat comes from. And I cry because no one comes to hear us what we want to say. They only come here to spank us. That's why I'm crying. Our intention is good, says Amazon farmer Jamar Bernier. Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom in Brazil in 2009. Well, that farmer, Jamar Brunier, might have another beef with Greenpeace today. The organization has long promoted conservation, but it recently criticized subnational red projects in a report called Outsourcing Hot Air. Greenpeace says these red projects may do little to cut pollution. From November, California will phase in a statewide cap-and-trade system that allows polluting companies to buy carbon offsets from red projects in the developing world. Roman Paul Chabiniak is a Greenpeace senior policy advisor on climate change and forests. He says the problem with the California plan is one of scale. We're very much in favor of financing forest protection at many different levels. Our issue is with the push for including subnational forest offset projects into the carbon markets in a way that would allow industrial polluters to continue to emit in California 
and elsewhere. What's the downside of letting large carbon polluters in California buy some offsets? There are three key problems. And the first is that the subnational forest offsets that are being considered here have not been proven to deliver real additional emission reductions. So if you're exchanging fake reductions for real reductions, you're actually making the climate crisis even worse. I think the second problem, studies at Stanford University and elsewhere have shown that the subnational offset approach could actually do more harm than good by creating a disincentive to national level reductions in different sectors. And finally, the markets are very good at delivering a specific commodity at the lowest possible cost. And in the framework of forests, you're dealing with very complex ecosystems, uh, which have people who have lived there for millennia and rich biodiversity and foods for the planet. So the risk is that by focusing only on the carbon, you could lose the forest for the trees. Now, red projects have to go through many rounds of verifications and certifications before their carbon credits are ever allowed on the market. How satisfied are you with the results from that level of scrutiny, or you see problems with the quality of these projects? Well, you're certainly right to point out that there are many voluntary standards out there. There are many verification bodies out there. But complexity is not a sufficient substitute for accuracy. If you're claiming emission reductions, how do we know that those emission reductions are real rather than just business as usual? The Greenpeace report looks at a forest carbon project in Chiapas, Mexico, as a case study. Can you tell me what you found there? Sure. Greenpeace sent a team to investigate the RED program in Chiapas to see whether or not it's delivering on its claims of emission reductions. And what we found is a significant lack of transparency in what is being promoted. Among other things, no baseline has been established. So we don't know whether or not it's achieving additional emission reductions or if it's just business as usual. Since there's no applicable national monitoring program, there's no way to know whether it's reducing deforestation or merely displacing deforestation to another part of the country. Let me ask you a basic philosophical question of Greenpeace. The Kyoto process calls for uh, national-level trading of emissions. How does Greenpeace view the notion of trading emissions to begin with? Greenpeace isn't opposed to carbon trading on any philosophical level. But when we look at the world's largest offset market, the clean development mechanism, it contains many lessons that we should consider when we're looking at the issue of red in California. One of these issues is, are we creating a disincentive to national level action on emissions by giving countries credit for doing something on a much smaller scale? So in some, Greenpeace would say that all the participation that China has had in the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto process, that that's for naught. It certainly seems to be the case that the CDM has provided an active disincentive for China to take action on climate change. But China has so far opposed action precisely because it gets credit and money for doing something on a much smaller scale. We're concerned that the same thing will happen with RED. We have an international climate change agreement where countries have committed to taking action on a national level. And what California and others are pushing for is for those countries to do something that is significantly less. Roman Paul Jabiniak is a senior policy advisor on climate change and forests at Greenpeace International. 
But the Greenpeace report didn't go unchallenged. Dan Nepstad defended the California plan in the online magazine Manga Bay. Nepstad is executive director of EPOM International. That's the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. He says red at a national level is still a long-term goal, but it will be a while in coming. So in the interim, while we're still waiting for this grand uh, global scheme to come together, we've got to be very pragmatic and look for any opportunity that we can to get positive recognition and benefits flowing into these states and provinces that have done amazing things in lowering greenhouse gas emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. The Greenpeace report, they call it outsourcing hot air, is saying that the subnational red projects won't actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They say polluters in California, in this case, will still be able to go on polluting. California's international offset mechanism would actually be the first market mechanism that rewards states and provinces around the world that have already reduced global greenhouse gas emissions by 1.5%, and they've received virtually nothing for that. This is the type of transformation that California's offset system could leverage, could catalyze. If California drops this piece of its legislation, the chances of securing these gains and deepening these gains for the climate and for rainforests will be greatly diminished. How does the reduction of emissions uh, attributed to RED compare to what's happened under the Kyoto Protocol? Believe it or not, even though RED doesn't actually have a fully formed international mechanism, we've had about one and a half billion tons of emissions reductions just from the states of the Brazilian Amazon, compared to 1.9 billion tons in the uh, European Union uh, nations that are participating in the Kyoto Protocol. So these states and provinces of the tropical nations have achieved incredibly important emissions reductions. 1.5% of all of the emissions that human activities release to the atmosphere have been reduced basically voluntarily by these states and provinces. And, and it's in this context that preserving this element of international offsets within the California climate policy is incredibly important to send the signal to these political leaders that what they've done is recognized and will be rewarded. What do you think motivates Greenpeace and its criticism? They use very strong language that uh, these schemes that I'm quoting here risk wasting finite resources on a policy mechanism that will not deliver real benefits for the climate, forests, or people, and could even make matters worse. In my opinion, this report is poorly informed. I think this is a lack of understanding, really, of the processes that it's criticizing. We do have to be careful with offsets. I think that as we see with the clean development mechanism uh, of the Kyoto Protocol, some of these mechanisms do not give us climate benefits. They do not really add up to robust reductions in greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere, even though a lot of money is flowing. We do have to keep an eye on these mechanisms, and I think we need watchdog groups like Greenpeace doing just that. In this case, though, I think that uh, they missed the mark. Dan Nepstad, what do you think is the real potential of RED uh, to deliver on its promises, to protect rainforests, uh, to preserve biodiversity, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Steve, that's the quintessential question. We think that RED is the first step towards a much larger shift in the way we grow food and livestock and fiber and feed and fuel around the world that basically retools the economy. 
so that those economic transactions and activities that are eroding the natural capital of the planet will make less money because we're building in those, the environmental externalities into those transactions. It's this recipe, it's this new development model that we think could eventually, by 2020, reduce emissions by as much as 10%. This is, for me, one of the great sources of optimism today. Dan Nepstad is Executive Director and Senior Scientist at EPOM International, part of the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you very much, Steve. Coming up, looking back nearly half a century to an environmental landmark. Good evening, my fellow citizens. What murdered these four young girls? In order that we might bring you coverage of President Kennedy's visit. Weather, no rain, top would be down. So evidently, uh, for all of you people who will see the parade downtown, you'll see a glimpse. It's 1963. Gas costs 29 cents a gallon. The Beatles released their first single and 250,000 people march on Washington. President Kennedy is shot. Pollution by corporations goes relatively unchecked, and the word environmentalist doesn't even exist. That was about to change, and it all began with one image. That image was a beloved mountain on the Hudson River called Storm King. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It all began back in 1963, when the utility company Consolidated Edison announced plans to build a power plant facility on the iconic Storm King Mountain to supply New York's growing energy needs. What it launched was a full-scale environmental battle to save this gateway to the Hudson Highlands, so treasured and so often painted by artists. Think Thomas Cole and Frederick Church. The campaigners drew on the tactics of the NAACP developed for the civil rights movement and helped launch a whole branch of environmental law. Storm Over the Mountain presents this epic history. It's part of the Sound and Story Project, mixed and narrated by Jim Metzner. Consolidated Edison was the major energy company serving the New York metropolitan area. In April 1963, they published a drawing of a proposed state-of-the-art electric plant. Con Ed boasted that the plant would satisfy all of New York City's growing energy needs. But instead, something happened that nobody could have predicted. Con Ed applied to the Federal Power Commission for a license to build the plant. The commission in those days was as much a part of the industry as the utility companies they were supposed to regulate. So much so that when the chairman of Con Ed announced the project, he said, no difficulties are anticipated. 
Besides, Con Ed was proposing a plant on the Hudson, a river whose pollution was legendary. But the Hudson is bad. It is really bad. I went over, I saw a fisherman today. He turned his back for a second and his worm made a break for it. He had slaughterhouses dumping chicken parts into the river and blood and guts. Fran Dunwell, coordinator of the Hudson River Estuary Program, grew up on the river. Communities were dumping raw sewage into the Hudson. Industries were dumping industrial chemicals. It was just an industrial canal. Power plants along the Hudson were not new. Con Ed's nuclear power plant at Indian Point was just 38 miles north of New York City. But this would be the first hydroelectric pump storage facility. So the idea for the power plant was that they would pump river water up the mountain to a reservoir at the top. That's 8 billion gallons up a two-mile-long tunnel 40 feet in diameter. They would pump it up at night when there was low demand for electricity, and they would release it from the mountaintop reservoir down through turbines back to the river during the day, during peak demand. Those 8 billion gallons of water would sit in the mountaintop reservoir, functioning like a huge storage battery. Then the water would be let loose, surging through the tunnel, turning giant turbines, generating electricity for New York City. But he went electric, right, in the 50s and 60s. Everybody's buying electric appliances. They're putting electric heat in their house. This is all basically happening during the day. And then at night, everybody goes to sleep. They turn off the dryer. They turn off the dishwasher. They turn down the heat. And there's a low electric demand. It would take more energy to pump the water up the hill than the facility would actually produce. But it worked because they pumped the water up at night when their energy costs were low. And then they'd release the water during the day when demands for energy were high and they could charge more for it. You have to admit, it was ingenious. No question about it. It was the wave of the future. That's what everybody was doing. If you wanted to be top of your game in the field of electric power, that's what you would propose. And here you had this big river full of water, mountains on both sides, just the right height, just the right size. The mountain was Storm King. It's 1,350 feet high, about 50 miles north of New York City, and it stands like a sentinel guarding the entrance to the Hudson Highland and some of the most celebrated scenery in the world. It was a mountain that had been painted by the Hudson River School of Painters. It was where George Washington had fought major battles to win the Revolutionary War. It was a mountain that had incredible significance, and that was the mountain that Con Ed chose for a power plant. So in May 1963, Con Ed proudly announced in its annual report their plans to build the largest of its kind, state-of-the-art pumped storage facility. They also published an image. Betsy Pugh is a Hudson Valley resident and early grassroots organizer. And then everyone stepped back and said, good heavens, what is this? And they were aghast, you know, it was like, how could you scar Storm King Mountain? It just took the whole side off the mountain and people were shocked. There was no going back from that They published it with all great pride. When people saw that, they said, we can't let this happen. The beloved mountain looked like a set for a science fiction movie. 
A huge chunk was carved out of its side to house the power plant with a transformer and a switchyard in plain view from the river. So a handful of people got together and said, you know, we have to form a coalition of people to fight this. They called themselves the Scenic Hudson Preservation Conference, a group of 12 diverse people who had in common their passion for the river's history and beauty. And they realized Con Ed was going to have to get a license from the Federal Power Commission. And that would be the only avenue they might have to raise legal issues and fight the project. And so Scenic Hudson challenged Con Ed's request for a license. The Federal Power Commission, or FPC, agreed that the scenic value of the Hudson Highlands was great. The public's need for electric power, however, was greater. In 1964, Con Ed's plans to build the hydroelectric pump storage facility in the face of Storm King Mountain were approved and a license was granted. But the case had also caught the attention of Bob Boyle, a writer for Sports Illustrated and an avid fisherman. Bob had explored every nook and cranny of the Hudson and knew firsthand that the polluted river was still home to millions of fish that fed the entire East Coast fishery. Bob was passionate about the Hudson, and he liked a good fight. During the FPC hearings, Con Ed expert Dr. Alfred Perlmutter guaranteed that there would be no impact on fish eggs and that the spawning grounds for striped bass were much further up the river. He also claimed that no study had been done on the Hudson River fishery since 1936. But Bob Boyle obtained a copy of a scientific paper on the Hudson written in the 50s so he tracked down the authors of the paper. I said, I have this paper that you did in which you found that striped bass spawned right in the vicinity of Storm King Mountain. He said, that's right. I said, uh, well, uh, Dr. Alfred Perlmutter. He said, Al Perlmutter? I said, do you know him? He said, no, him. he hired us. He was in charge of the survey. I said, oh, ho, ho. The fact that Storm King Mountain was the location of a striped bass spawning ground wasn't the only thing that Con Ed's expert witness got wrong. Bob Boyle also knew that pumping eggs, larvae, and young fish up a mountain and then shooting them down through a whirl of turbine blades would devastate the fish population. How would you like it if I said, uh, I'm going to shoot you up in an elevator at 100 miles an hour, and I'm going to drop you down again, and uh, I don't know how it's going to stop on the first floor. That's the essence of what was going on with the fish. Dr. Perlmutter had estimated that only 3.6% of the fish in the Hudson would be killed, but he left out one thing. The Hudson is a tidal river. What was critical about this is that if you had striped bass eggs in the Storm King area, they just don't go past the intakes that would suck up the water once they'd go past it 10 times. And so instead of the phony formula that the state and Con Ed concocted, in which they said that 3.6% of the fish could be killed, was 36%. To support this claim, someone had taken photos of massive fish kills at Con Ed's Indian Point power plant down the river, photos that mysteriously disappeared. Feeling like a character in a spy novel, Bob Boyle tracked down copies of the photos from two men associated with the conservation department. I said, how do you happen to have the pictures? They said, well, you know, our superiors came to us and they said, uh, we want the pictures you have. So they took the pictures. And then they came back a month later and they said, 
we want any duplicates you have. So we gave them the duplicates. And I said, how about this? They said they didn't ask about triplicates. The case had also caught the public's attention. The growing threat of urbanization was changing the American landscape. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, exposed the danger of pollution. A belief in the power of the common person to organize and fight large corporations was fueling massive demonstrations. Scenic Hudson grew from a small group of concerned citizens to an organization with members from all over the country and the world. They organized protests and letter campaigns, but the main fight remained on the legal battlefield. They hired a prominent law firm to appeal the decision to license the plant. Albert K. Butzel was one of the attorneys assigned to the case. I would describe myself at that point as a uh, very frightened first-year associate. The appellate case was heard in October 1965. Con Ed argued that Scenic Hudson did not have the right to sue. It lacked what in legal terms is called standing. In order to initiate a lawsuit, you had to have some sort of economic interest. You can't just be a citizen who cares about it. You have to have some kind of legal interest. And historically, legal interests had been identified with property ownership. Well, Scenic Hudson was a group of citizens without any financial interest in power plants or the mountain. Nevertheless, they persisted and asked the FPC to demand that Con Ed do a better job at reviewing alternative ways to provide electricity to New York City and investigate further the threat to the Hudson's fish. And when the argument was over, I thought we had a 25% chance. But while Scenic Hudson waited for the court's decision, Presents something unexpected report. happened. The story of tonight's massive power failure in the East. Then on November the 9th, uh, the lights went out in New York. It was the great blackout of 1965. And then within a day or two afterwards, Con Edison had put advertisements into the paper apologizing for the blackout and saying if they'd had the Storm King project, they would never have had the blackout. So from our optimism, <laughs> we moved to pessimism. Then on December 27, 1965, Al Butzel got a call from a New York Times reporter. For the first time in history, the court had reversed an FPC decision to license a power plant. I was thrilled. <laughs> to win a case of this importance made me feel that uh, I was a contributor. The court agreed with Scenic Hudson that the beauty and historic significance of Storm King had to be considered. The FPC was obligated to thoroughly evaluate all the evidence, including the potential danger to fish and alternative ways to provide New York City with electricity. And it remanded the case to the Federal Power Commission for further hearings, saying that the preservation of scenic beauty and historic sites must be regarded as a basic concern. And the court said that even though Scenic Hudson had no economic or property interests, it did have standing. It had the right to sue. It essentially opened the doors of the federal courts and later the state courts to litigation by environmental groups that had a connection. Well, this was big, a major turning point. It was no longer just about the money. Scenic beauty and wildlife were given protection right alongside business and commerce. 
It opened up an entirely new way for groups and ordinary citizens to fight development happening in their own backyard. The National Environmental Policy Act was passed four years later. Modern environmental law was born. Pick up a newspaper any day of the week, and it's likely that you can still see the impact of this case. But Storm King and the Hudson River were not saved. Even as citizen groups across the country began to use the law to protect scenic beauty and natural resources, the threat to Storm King Mountain and the Hudson River remained, and it would take 16 more years of court proceedings and congressional investigations before the battle was over. Then, finally, on December 19, 1980, representatives from 11 environmental, government, and utility groups signed what later became known as the Hudson River Peace Treaty. That someday, though maybe not this year, my Hudson River will once again run clear. In the end, each side gave up something. Con Ed abandoned the Storm King project completely and donated the 500-acre site as a park. Environmental groups reduced the steps that Con Ed needed to take at its existing power plants in the Hudson to protect the striped bass. But the battle was over. The Hudson River once more gave birth to a new era in American history. Citizens' groups that formed in response to the Storm King case continue today. Scenic Hudson, Riverkeeper, the Clearwater Sloop, and the Hudson River Foundation all guard the river well. And although much still needs to happen to clean up the Hudson, every day citizen groups across the country depend upon the precedents set from the 1965 case Scenic Hudson versus the Federal Power Commission. The nation and the Hudson River have won. So I've personally taken my kids swimming in the Hudson. I swim in the Hudson myself without fear. That's a huge transformation from what the river was in my childhood. The water's clear, but I live right at Beacon here. Halfway between the mountains and the sea. Storm Over the Mountain came to us from the Sound and Story Project. It was narrated and mixed by Jim Metzner and produced and edited by Eileen McAdam. Still I love it and I'll dream That someday, though maybe not this year My Hudson River and my country will run clear Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Basklin, Helen Palmer, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza all helped to make our show, and so does our intern, Emmett Fitzgerald. Thanks this week to the New York State Council for the Humanities. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds. 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.